All right, verse, verse number 12. When Gallio was deputy of, of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. When Paul was now about to open his mouth, Gallio said unto the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O you Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. But if it be a question of your words and names and of your law, look ye to it, for I will be no judge of such matters. And he drave them from the judgment seat. But then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. And Gallio cared for none of these things. And Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and took his leave of the brethren, and sailed thence into Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in uh, Sincrea, for he had a vow. And he came to Ephesus, and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue, and reasoned with the Jews. When they desired him to tarry longer time with them, he consented not. But bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you, if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch, and after that he'd spent some time there, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phygia in order strengthening all the disciples. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we certainly love you. I thank you for your word. Lord, I do ask your blessing upon the message today. Lord, I pray that you would uh, uh, control what I say and how I say it. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work. Help me to stay focused on you and on your word and help me to stay very true to your word. Lord, please use it to change us and challenge us and draw us closer. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who has never truly been converted, I pray for that conviction, for that drawing, that even this morning they repent and place their faith in Christ. Lord, I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I began this message last week. This is part two of this. And we looked at Paul as he's been on this second missionary journey and all that's taken place when he began this. And after he left his home church there, his sending church in Antioch, trying to go back to Galatia, um, the Lord then shutting doors. And Paul, even not even sure which way to go, he ends up in Troas. And there he receives what's referred to as the Macedonian call. God provides a vision. This call to head into Europe. So Paul obeys it. By the way, he picks up Luke in Troas at that time. That's, that's where he met Luke. And he heads over into Macedonia, into modern-day Greece, if you will. And the first place he stops and, and begins to preach is in Philippi. It's there he is beaten, thrown in prison. But we saw how the Lord used all of that in Philippi. How that, what took place there, would end up serving as a measure of protection for that brand new church that is in Philippi. Paul heads out. He has a Thessalonica. Once again, the Jews cause a riot. He's run out of town. He heads to Berea. He's preaching there. A church gets established. The Jews come down from Thessalonica. He has to run out of Berea. And then he heads over to Athens. While he's in Athens, he deals with the intellectuals there that are taking place. He is given just such a tremendous opportunity. As we looked at the sovereignty of God with who Paul was witnessing to and giving the gospel to, to on that sermon on Mars Hill and all that took place. And we looked at how just incredible that was because we know what he was referring to when he was preaching um, to the unknown God, that that just wasn't a random sign stuck there, that there was, a, there was a story behind it that actually had to deal with Jehovah God. And Paul used that to launch into the gospel. From there he leaves. Uh, why he would have been in Athens, let me mention this briefly, you would have had Timothy and Silas coming down to meet him. When he left Berea, he was alone. But when they got down there, he sent them both right back out again. 
He was concerned what was going on still in Thessalonica and in Philippi, and those two head back to those places. Paul then drops down to Corinth. Again, it's been a difficult second missionary journey, really including his first missionary journey. He gets down there again. He is alone. He, we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he's probably physically sick. He is discouraged. And then you begin to see how God encouraged him. That was just one of the messages on God's encouragement. Remember, he provided, when he gets down to Corinth, God puts into his life Aquila and Priscilla. Now, more than likely, contextually speaking, they were already saved. They had come from Rome. They end up in Corinth. They're of the same occupation as Paul. Paul ends up staying with them. And what an encouragement that would have been. But we also see fruit that God began to give to his account while he's in Corinth. With the chief ruler of the synagogue trusting Christ. And then the third way God encouraged him was with this vision, a promise of God's presence and his protection. Which brought us into last week's message. Which is where we left off. Where we see in our text here that there's, there's a lot that goes with the Christian life. It is all about glorifying God. Life is all about Him. But we have so much with our salvation. I mean, if all we had was just God saving us, obviously that's more than enough because He's the Creator to serve Him and glorify Him. But the truth is, God provides so much more in our relationship with Him. It really is incredible. And so we look at three aspects of that from the text right here. And what's taking place is, within those few verses we read, Paul finishes up his second missionary journey and immediately starts the third missionary journey. Last week we looked at one aspect of this, and that was the protection. We saw where Paul, while he's in Corinth, the, the Jewish leadership stir up trouble, and they bring him before Gallio. This is not your city government. This guy is the proconsul. He is the governor of this province. Um, he is a powerful man from a very powerful family. We looked at that. He's the older brother of Seneca. These are people that helped tutor Nero, who would become the Roman emperor. And we know his decisions, because of the position he was in, his judicial decisions on serious matters, set precedent for the entire Roman Empire. This is why the Jewish leader, different than in times past, they did not bring Paul before the local city government. That just had effect within the city they were in. They thought they had a great opportunity here, so they bring him because he was new, he was in town, Gallio was there, they bring him before him. And their goal is, we can get Christianity banned from the province. This was a serious situation. They, they bring him before Gallio, Paul is getting ready to speak. He doesn't have to say a word. As we read in the text, it says, he was about to speak. And then God used Gallio to defend him. He said, listen, I'm having none of this. You can see the man had some knowledge of Judaism, of course, um, and Christianity for that matter. He said, listen, this, this, is a, this is clearly a manner for you to decide. This is dealing with your teachings, your customs, your laws. I'm not getting involved in it. I think it's likely, just because of where Paul would preach publicly, that at the very least, he knew of Paul, if he hadn't heard him preach already. And so, it gives the terminology that, that he had to drive the Jews out of the court. Which implies they, they argued with him. They said, no, no, and they, they tried to argue with him. Well, it ends up, they get who it now is the chief ruler of the synagogue, who would be the primary speaker, Sosthenes. And he gets beaten right there. Paul, by the way, is witnessing all of this. Now, get this. This is where 
the Lord is just incredible. So here's the chief ruler of the synagogue. The previous one's already been saved Christmas. He's already trusted Christ. Paul led him to the Lord. Here's the new one. He bring the charge before Paul. He's trying to get Christianity banned throughout the entire Roman Empire. Gallio's having none of it. He throws them out. And the chief ruler who is speaking, he gets beaten. The next time we hear of him is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And he's a believer. And we speculate because I don't know what led to it. But I gave some possibilities that would have... Obviously the preaching is, is the thing that led to it. But I wonder if the first person ministering him when he was beaten at that court wasn't Paul. If it wasn't Paul was the one right there with him. The man he was just trying to have thrown in jail. He would have liked to have seen executed. Trying to get the entire movement banned from the Roman Empire. He gets beaten. And there's Paul. I don't know. That's just speculation. The Bible doesn't give us a hint one way or another on that. But we do know that man gets saved. That brings us, so that was one aspect we have that comes with our faith when we serve God, is we do have God's protection. Nothing happens to us that God doesn't allow. Nothing. But we also see within our text, there's two other things that come with it. We're going to finish both of those up today. And that is passion with our relationship and path. And I'll explain that when I get to it. So now, let's go on to the second one, passion. Just one verse I want to read for this. And that is going to be verse number 18. <clears throat> and Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and took his leave of the brethren, and sailed thence into Syria with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in uh, Sincrea, for he had a vow. Let's, let's look right here at this verse of what takes place. It's within that simple, informative statement of what's taking place that we get a really good glimpse into the passion that Paul had for God. He heads into Sincrea, which is the port city of Corinth. He's getting ready to take a boat ride across, and he's on his way back to Jerusalem. He's bringing Aquila and Priscilla with him, which is important. Think of what that means. Paul had stayed 18 months in Corinth. That's his, on any of his missionary journeys, this is his longest stint yet that he's able to stay in one place. He stayed 18 months there, and, and he's, he's, he is, he's leaving now, and he takes with him a couple of key people, Aquila and Priscilla, which means he had leadership trained and ready to go when he left. Maybe it was Crispus. Yes, we don't know. But he had leadership ready to go when he left. He had converts ready to leave. Really is just incredible. In other words, this man worked at what God gave him to do. He wasn't lazy about it. He, listen, if the Lord gives you a ministry, whatever it is, stay faithful at it. Don't just, don't just be satisfied the fact that you have a ministry. But be willing to work at it and see God bless it and honor it. Now, what we see take place in 18 that I want to focus on, it says that Paul vowed a vow. This would be a Nazarite vow, because we know that, because he had cut his hair. The Nazarite, this word comes from the Hebrew word, Nazar, which means to vow, uh, to promise something. I want to read one commentator talking about the, this root word. He said, there's a Greek word, Nazir, the same word. It's used to speak of holiness or devotion. Now, when a person took a Nazarite vow, this is still under the commentary, now, when a person took a Nazarite vow, he was saying, God, I promise to consecrate myself totally to you. He was cutting off every other thing. 
A Nazarite totally consecrated himself to God, took a vow of self-imposed separation, self-imposed discipline for the purpose of special devotion to God. Let's turn over to Numbers chapter 6 and get the biblical guidelines for this vow. I'm not going to read all of this. It covers the chapter. So I'm going to probably jump around here a little bit. Verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When either a man or a woman shall uh, shall separate themselves to vow a vow, of a Nazarite to separate themselves unto the Lord. You see the purpose for it. And then it gives what he's going to separate from, where the discipline is going to come from. Uh, He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink. Neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat uh, uh, moist grapes or dried. All the days of his separation shall eat nothing that is made of of, of the vine tree from the kernels, even to thus. By the way, probably tonight I will discuss that a little bit. There, there, those that were in the Sunday school two weeks ago, there's three things I needed, that I need to bring up that I don't believe are scriptural that will talk. But I'll get into those uh, uh, probably briefly this evening. Um, all the days of the vow of a separation, there shall no razor come upon his head until the days be fulfilled in which he separate himself unto the Lord. He shall be holy and shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. And again, this, was, this would be for male and female, by the way. You see that up in verse 2. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother, for his brother, for his sister. Uh, um, It it goes on. um, Because the consecration of his God is upon his head. I'll tie into that in just a little bit. All the days of his separation, he is holy unto the Lord. And let's jump on down. I could easily read all this. It really does just flow. Um, Verse 13. And this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled... He, uh, he shall be brought unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. He shall offer his offering unto the Lord, uh, one he lamb of the first year without blemish for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb of the first year without blemish for a sin offering, and one ram without blemish for a peace offering. And a basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour, mingled with oil, wafers of unleavened bread, anointed. Again, it's getting into what he needs to uh, what he needs to offer, the meat offering. Notice verse 18, And the Nazarite shall shave the head of his separation at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall take the hair of his head of his separation, put it in the fire as well with the offerings that was made, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offerings. So all this is taking place. You have your guidelines that are given to us right here in Numbers chapter 6. This was a vow that one of the children of Israel could make, man or woman, of this separating themselves unto God. A special devotion time um, before the Lord. It would involve self-discipline. They could consume nothing at all that came from the grave. They had to keep themselves clean in every way possible. This was, it was almost like their most consecrated time they could have in life. It was like, this is the time, God, I will focus on nothing, on nothing but you. That's what I'm going to do. Um, obviously, you see, hair would not be cut during this time until the completion of the vow. 
The vow had to be, we have more information on this, which I don't have the quotes from, but, uh, but I do have the principles from, from the Mishnah and the Jewish documents of other guidelines that took place here. They would have to have that final completion with the hair uh, um, cut, um, had to take place in Jerusalem by the tabernacle or temple, whichever one was in place at the time. Um, the purpose of the hair, as we also read in the one verse, was so others would know, don't tempt them. Don't come up and have them and hand them some grape juice. They're in the middle of a vow. Don't tempt them. It was the indication, hey, I, I have separated myself unto God. Here's how everyone else knows. So you don't come and put something before them that might not necessarily be sinful of itself, although some of it was. But it might not be necessarily sinful of itself, but they have dedicated themselves. So listen, I'm not even going to touch it. Don't tempt me. Matter of fact, when you get into when Israel ends up pulling far from God, you'll notice in several texts that one of the sins of the nation was those, even when the nation was struggling spiritually, idolatry was in place, you had some who were still trying to serve God, and some of them would take a Nazarite vow. And you know what some of them in the nation would do? They would try and tempt them on purpose so they could get them to break it. Isn't it amazing that when you decide that you're really going to serve God, the amount of those who want to see you fail at it? We know, we know also uh, from the Mishnah that the vows that were taken were usually of three set times. 30 days, 60 days, or 100 days. 30 days being the most common one that they would vow. That would be, that would be the time frame they would usually give it. But 30, 60, and 100 are all in there. Based just on the timing of Corinth and what was taking place, we believe that Paul took a 30-day vow right here. Um, a Nazarite vow unto the Lord. Now, there are those in Scripture who are made Nazarites from their birth. There are three. Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. Now, in each of those, obviously the person did not dictate that. That was directed by God himself. And in all of human history, it only happened three times. Now, we are not told specifically why Paul made this vow, but really it's pretty easy to figure out. All right? Um, when people made a Nazarite vow, it was usually out of thankfulness. Let me quote from Josephus when he was talking about when we would make this vow. Josephus said this, It was common for the Jews to make such vows to God as an expression of gratitude or of devotedness to his service when they have been raised up from sickness or delivered from danger or calamity. Think of all that Paul had been through. Think of the challenges he has faced in the second missionary journey. Think how down he was when he got to Athens alone. Remember, he left Berea alone. Timothy and Silas end up coming into Athens, but he sends them out immediately. Then he comes down to Corinth, and he's still alone. It would be a discouraging time. All that he was seeing... Remember when Paul got into Athens? I mean... The man really is incredible. He is, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is my hero of the faith, is the Apostle Paul. As he's around Athens, I think most of us would be just in awe at the structures, at the architect, architecture that was completed in Athens, how amazing it would have been. Paul was not impressed at all. He was so troubled by all the idolatry that was taking place. He realized how foolish they're worshiping these gods made of stone, made of wood. He's, again, he's down, he's discouraged. 
He's been severely beaten in Philippi, in prison. A riot is ensuing. Remember, part of the condition when Paul had to leave Thessalonica was, with that surety that was made, was that he would not return. Um, there's so much that's going on. And now here he is in Corinth. He sees the chief ruler of the synagogue saved. God himself gives him the third vision of his ministry. And it's Lord telling him, Paul, I'm with you. I got this. Paul, I know right where you're at. And then the Lord allows him just to stay there. So you can see Paul with all the deliverance, all that God did, why he would vow this vow. Paul was so thankful for all that God did for him in letting him stay in one place. All the victories that took place in Corinth, the church that was being raised up. And listen, don't forget, Paul is a Jewish man. This is, in in the Jewish mindset... This was the way, the best way possible to show passion, to show gratitude to God, was to take this vow. And the fact that he made this vow, that does show his passion for the Lord. It's showing, it's showing the Lord how his thoughts are on him, how thankful he is, how he wants his life to be all about God, the gratitude he has. We see it is truly the Lord what Paul was passionate about. I mean, think about this. If, you, if, if your family had to describe your passion, what would it be? The key, one of the keys to Paul's success in ministry was the devotion and passion he had for God. I mean, Paul was obviously a man who loved truth, but it was even more than just the truth. It was passion for for who God is and all that He is and His mercy. For all that God showed him, for the help that He had provided, for how good God is, even though Paul doesn't deserve it. Sadly, even though God is so very good to all of us, even though we don't deserve it, We usually do enough to get by in our service. We look to do what's required. Lord, I'll I'll do what's what's required. We lack passion. We don't want to go the extra mile. I mean, many times, those who are willing to go the extra mile, uh, um, again, I think many times because there can be conviction on others' lives, they, they get accused as trying to be super spiritual and everything else, when many times it's just somebody who wants to get closer to God. Passion drives you to give more. You want to show your love. We can think about it in our own relationships. The role that passion plays in those. Now, in our day right now, we don't need to make a Nazarite vow. We don't. You see, the truth is, scripturally speaking, the very moment you got saved, you entered into that. Look at Romans chapter 12. Things changed, obviously, with Jesus Christ and 
and the fulfillment of all the prophecy of his first coming, culminating with the death, burial, and resurrection. You've got to think what came with that at conversion, which had not been in place in all of human history. That, at that from that point forward, all those who converted, God's Holy Spirit would indwell and seal unto the day of the redemption. There was no one that had that prior to that time. You would read in Scripture, the Holy Spirit came upon them and then left. For us, right now, from the time of Christ on, from the time of His death, burial, and resurrection on, God's Spirit, for those who are saved, indwells you and seals you. You are separated unto God. Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world. Is it not incredible how just the opposite is taking place right now? How this, this ideology, ideology has come in convincing churches to conform to the world, and that is somehow tied into evangelism. Do you want to know what's going to reach others when you effectively preach the gospel? When they see it with passion. When they see it making a difference. And people are looking. We had an incident at church yesterday and the Lord was in it. Um, all this, uh, Jerry had left his window cracked of the Lord. It started blowing the curtain. Somehow that little, that little blow of the curtain set off the, the uh, motion detector here in church. Now, those you remember the men of faith... I, I was trying to do an illustration, and I was going to set off the motion detector. All right? So I had the alarm set. You all didn't know it. And so I am trying to move this, set it up, and it won't even go off. So now I'm jumping up and down, and now it finally goes off. Well, yesterday afternoon, with the little blow of a curtain, it goes off. I didn't think much of it. Uh, the Warrens are over in the missionary apartment that called, and, and uh, guard security called me up real quick. I said, you can disregard. I said, I, I, said, I know where it's at. It's probably just a left open window. And then, and then uh, Rebecca texted Mary and said, um, the fire department showed up. They want in. And then guard security called me and they said, we're getting all kinds of alarms going off right now. And she's listing them to me. And so I said, I'm on my way there. I said, I'll be there in 12 minutes. So I show up and the fire department's out here waiting. They, they, I'm not going to say how they got in, but because then everybody else will try and do that. And this is live stream right now, so I'll avoid that. But they managed to get into our building. All right. And so I come in, I quickly turn off the alarm, shut it down, and I'm talking with all the firemen. There's uh, uh, four or five or six here. And then the main guy who was talking while we're talking down there, he's looking over at our tracks. I didn't have to say anything. He grabbed one. It's what is truth. And so we're still talking. And then before he leaves, he said, hey, can I take this so I can read it? And I said, oh, yeah. And I knew right there, this is exactly why all this happened right here. Exactly. Listen, the very moment you got saved, you were set apart for God. That very moment. Your life is about God. Stop living for what's vanity. Say, do I have to quit my job? No, I don't think that at all. I think you changed the purpose of why you have that job. Where it's about the Lord. All right, let me move on to the last one. I've got to hurry your path. Another aspect of our relationship when we get saved. We see we have God's protection. The passion should be there in our relationship. And now path. What we have taking place in Acts 18 and the rest of it 
is Paul, he travels out, he brings Aquila and Priscilla again with him, and he heads in, I'm not going to read the verses, but I'm dealing with verse 19 on down through the rest of our text when he comes into Ephesus, and then he's going to leave Ephesus, and he's going to head on into Jerusalem, then to Antioch, and then begin his third missionary journey, all within those little verses. So Paul travels out, it mentions Syria, that's Palestine, that, that's the region where Israel is, all right? Um, it's not, don't think of Syria like we think of in our mind today. It's speaking back to the region where, where Paul came out of. He's on his way back to Palestine, back to Jerusalem. But he comes into Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, this was a, a truly important city in the Roman Empire. Um, it is the capital of Asia under the Roman Empire. It was famous for the Temple of Diana. Um, this was reckoned one of the seven wonders of the world. It was referred to as the Ornament of Asia. It was a well-known, important city in the Roman Empire. I'm not going to dive too much into it, because we'll get into that later in other messages about Ephesus. So, but Paul nonetheless heads into Ephesus, and he does as his, as his uh, usual routine was. He heads to the synagogue to preach. And the Bible says he reasons with him that Jesus, he reasons with him, reasons what? That Jesus is the Messiah. And again, you can just see those people, especially those who desire truth, listening to this man, Paul, formerly Saul, a rabbi, a leader within Israel before his conversion. And they're listening to this man make the biblical argument of why this man, Jesus, was in fact the Christ. And you should go back to listen to some of the previous messages where we get into what would he teach on? What would he use to demonstrate that this man Jesus was in fact the Messiah? And so they're listening to this reasoning take place and you know it's grabbing. You know, just like when Paul heard Stephen, remember what the Bible said, when Paul heard Stephen preach when he was still persecuting the church and he gave the authority to kill Stephen? Paul who was one of the great debaters, one of the great minds, when he heard Stephen preach, couldn't argue with him. He's like, I don't even know how to respond to that. So they're listening to this. However, Paul can't stay. He has to leave. He has to leave. He has to finish his vow where? Jerusalem. He has to get it finished at Jerusalem. He has to do his, his offerings bring the hair that he still has. He's already cut it now. He's bringing it with him because that has to go with the sacrifice. And there's also a feast taking place. Not certain which feast. It's thought to be probably the Passover feast is what's taking place at this time. But anyhow, those in the synagogue in Ephesus, they want him to stay. Which, which obviously I love that. And many say that, the, that these were responding different than in other places uh, because of them desiring Paul to stay. But I think, however, that's probably not the case. Because Paul is there for a very, very short time. He's speaking just maybe one, just a couple of times, and that's it, Max. I think had he stayed longer, the normal thing that took place would have begun to happen. As they saw men convert, jealousy would have risen, and, and the same thing. Because it's such a short time, I think that's what led to that. <clears throat> But Paul says, listen, I'm going to leave Aquila and Priscilla here. They're going to stay here, but I am going to go. And then we see in verse 22, it says, Paul heads up. That means Jerusalem. So Paul heads up to Jerusalem. He completes his vow. 
attends the feast, then he goes back to Antioch, reports back what took place in the second missionary journey, and then he immediately starts his third missionary journey. Now, what I want to focus in on is this in verse 21. This is the men in Ephesus desiring him to stay. Verse 21 says this, But bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you, get this, if God will. If God will. We see what the path of Paul's life was. What Paul used for direction, what Paul used for discernment, was simply God's will. If God will. Listen, if you want a right path for your life, this one's it. This isn't something in some unattainable spiritual realm. No, this is something that that should be in our life each and every day. If God will. This is where Paul lived. A true desire to follow God's will. The one who knows what tomorrow will bring. The one who is so sovereign and so in control. You see, too often, we just want God's will for certain decisions in our life that we view as critical. And so we desire God's will. That's not a bad thing. The problem is, too often, it's not how we live our life every day. Desiring God's will. I mean, you can think about it many times. We will put limitations on God's will. We can, we can actually box our thoughts in with certain areas of life that we won't even consider God's will. You say, listen, I, 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 I really know this isn't right, but boy, I, maybe I can do something. You better follow God's will. Paul clearly desired her to go wherever the Lord would have him. The men at the synagogue desiring Paul to say, pleading, listen, stay longer. I mean, look, Paul has an open door. He has the invite. An open door doesn't always mean it's God's will, just like every closed door doesn't always mean it's not God's will. Paul, what, what I love about Paul is this. What he truly wanted was simply whatever God did. That was his desire. That's where his heart was. It demonstrates the importance in how Paul lived a God-centered life versus a man-centered life. Paul said, I will come to you again if the Lord will. You you don't hear Paul saying this, Wow, this is the capital of Asia. Think what I could do here. I mean, think how important this province is, man. My name could, man, if I do something here, my name's going to grow. Paul was a man who never desired his own glory, but always God's glory. Our path needs to be that of God's will. Listen, you need to make sure your plans on a daily basis don't exclude God. See, God is not here, contrary to the popular belief you might hear on television and everywhere else, God is not there, as the creator, by the way, to bless your plans. We are here for his plans. 
But sadly, we can get into a routine where we exclude God as Christians. We have the popular saying of our day that many times this worldly philosophy creeps into our own thought life. Things like we hear today, I'm being your own captain in life. Live your life your way. Don't let anybody change that. Follow your heart. This, this philosophy of, of trying to somehow, you as a person, to live independent, self-sufficient of anything else, when what you better understand is you need God every day. A man-centered life will plan the future without considering God, especially when it goes against his own desires. I mean, did we not see this? I don't have time to turn there, but in James chapter 4, probably that reference came to your mind, didn't it? Verses 13, 14, and 15 right in there. Where that businessman, tomorrow we should go into the city and buy and sell and get gain. And then, and then you know, comes right back and says... Man, boast not thyself of, well, that, not there, that's trying and proper. Same principle, though, boast not thyself of tomorrow. Thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Whereas what is your life says, a vapor, pure for a while, then vanisheth away. If the Lord will, we shall, be, we shall say, yeah, I will do this or that. If the Lord will. What that businessman was consumed with was a man answer like, my decisions are based on what? Gain. That's the context of that. But that's not how a Christian should live. We should live a God-centered life. Too often, we as Christians make decisions based on life, based on a philosophy that comes in based on gain or economics or, or whatever the case might be. We basically live as a practical atheist. We believe in God. I don't question that. But when we make decisions, it's as if God's not there. Life is all about our relationship with God first and then with others. This is why so many can live a life so often filled with bitterness or just, there's just no joy. They've accomplished much, but they're just, and so they try the next accomplishment and then the next accomplishment and then the next accomplishment, but there's still something missing because they've lived a life Based that is accomplishment-driven instead of relationship-driven. Life is all about God. That's where the fulfillment comes in. That's what life is about. You can get so caught up in accomplishments and, and reaching those different goals that you miss out on the relationships. Primarily your relationship with God, then with others. It's a wrong view of life. L let me try and give a simple illustration um, between a husband and a wife. Let's say, let's say you know that, that your wife loves Diet Coke. All right? And so on your way home, you decide, you know what? I'm going to stop off at, at you're going to go all out. You're going to go to the gas station. And you're going to get one of those, is it big gulps? I don't know what they're called nowadays. It's the largest one they have of Diet Coke. And, and you're bringing that home, and you get there, and the truth is, if you're doing this with the right motive, that when you come in, 
what all that has been about since you left work to the moment you got home is just to see her face when you hand her the Diet Coke. Is that not right? Would it not be foolish if what you made it about was your accomplishment in doing it? Look what I'm going to do. I am going to go to the gas station. I am going to get a Diet Coke. I am thinking of my wife, and she is going to appreciate this. One is accomplishment-driven, and the other way is relationship-driven. One way will lead to hardness and difficulty in your life. One way will actually lead to a measure of satisfaction. And ultimately, the person that we are to live for relationship-wise is God. As a pastor, I have to guard against that. I have to make sure that my life isn't about ministry, that it's about God. That it's about him. Paul is one of the greatest examples of this when he's sitting in the prison and when he's writing the book of Philippi, uh, Philippians to the uh, church at Philippi. I mean, he's in prison with a human being chained to him in a horrible, filthy, nasty jungle. Dim lit, his own filth all around him, no break from it. And he writes this epistle to the Philippians, 102 verses dealing with rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Of the 102 verses, different than any other epistle in the Bible. The Lord Jesus Christ is mentioned more. I mean, in, in, in chapter 1, He is our life. Chapter 2, He is our mind. In chapter 3, He is our power. And in chapter 4, He is our sufficiency. He's writing that with a human being chained him. And in chapter 1, he's talking about, because the church at Philippi was worried about him. That's why he's actually, that was the motivation the Lord used to write that, pin that letter in. They thought, man, he had to be so miserable. They sent somebody to check, and he writes, listen. He says, listen, I know other preachers are even talking about me, belittling me right now. I, I know I'm in prison. I know I'm facing the death penalty. But, I mean, let's face it, the truth is, uh, um, to die is gay. But in verse 20 was the key to it. In verse 20 of chapter 1? I mean, think of what he says. I can't, I can't quote it right now. I'm going to have to turn there and read it. It's incredible. Let me, let me just, you don't have to turn there. I'm there right now. He says this. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be life or by death. Think what he's saying. He said, he's in prison with the human chain to him. He's not, round, he's not running the circuit, signing Bibles, anything of the sort. None of that's taking place. He said, you know what? He told the church, listen, I'm doing great. My life purpose hasn't changed. I can magnify God right now just like I can out there. That's what he lived for. He didn't live for, if he was living for ministry, he's miserable right now. Please pray for me. Get me out of here. No, they should be praying for him. I have no problem with that. Just understand what I'm trying to present to you. Please just pray for me. Get me out of here. Uh, um, I need to get out of this place. He's like, you know what? I can magnify God right here. Prior to that, he said, know what's happened as a result of this imprisonment? He said, Caesar's household has heard the gospel. I mean, think about that. Incredible. Caesar's household has heard the gospel. He was a man whose path was all about God. He lived for the Lord. That's what his life was all about. Listen, don't get so man-centered in life that all of a sudden you become accomplishment-driven instead of relationship-driven with your life. And you say, you say and there's a simple solution to it. Simply make it about God. 
each and every day make it about the Lord. Now, with heads bowed and eyes closed. Let me ask this question really quick. I want you to think about this. If you were to die right now, where would you go? Where would you go? If you were to die right now, where would you go? Look up at me just for a second before I go into this person. Look up at me just for a second. I want you to know this. Listen, I'm going to cover this very quickly. The Bible says it's appointed men once to die, but after this, the judgment. One day you will die. That will happen and you know it. And what you're going to face after that is a judgment of Almighty God. Judgment day will come. You're not escaping it. You're not avoiding it. There's a really big problem with that. You see, because we know what he's going to judge us, how he's going to judge us. The Bible teaches us clearly that he's going to judge you based upon his law. And you've broken it just like I have. So think about that. Okay, so I've broken God's law. So you're going to stand before a holy and righteous judge who is perfectly just and you're guilty. If you think that somehow you're going to get there and God's going to say, you know what, you and I had our own thing worked out. You have deceived your own heart. 